please remain standing and open your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 25. This morning, we're going to continue with the lesson that Jesus taught his hearers as he finished up those two very important parables of the ten virgins and the talents. He punctuates those, par- those two parables with the teaching of his return again in final judgment. So, beloved, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon us. Now, Father, we come now to this very solemn and serious portion of your word. And we pray for wisdom, understanding, and clarity of thought. Lord, we pray that we would be able to hear with spiritual ears and see with spiritual eyes. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would embrace this solemn and serious teaching. Lord, that there would bring that it would bring amendments to our lives, to the way we think, to how we live, to the way we treat one another. Well, we pray not just for a theoretical faith, but a faith that works, a grace that is effective. Lord, that we might on that great and solemn day at your return again, Lord, be welcomed in to your blessed eternal kingdom with great joy. And Father, I ask that if there's any here this morning that does not have that assurance, they don't know, Lord, whether or not they will hear those sweet words. We pray, O Lord, that this morning you would give them those ears and eyes to hear and see, that you would give them your spirit and awaken them from their darkness and death and bring them into your most blessed family. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to begin reading at verse 31 through the end of the chapter. So, hear now the word of the living God. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, and then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one uh, he will all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left and then the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed of my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And then they will also say to those on the left, and then he will also say to those on the left, depart from me, you accursed ones, 
into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or, or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and, it didn't, and did not care for you? And then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, as I've already stated, that this most solemn teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ comes to punctuate the two parables that he has just given in the, the crowd's hearing. The parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents. And Jesus punctuates these parables by stating that there is coming a day, there's going to be a time, there's going to be a day in the future when he will come again and on that day there will be final judgment. Now why did our Lord need to punctuate those parables with such a strong ending? What was the purpose of it? Quite simply, the purpose of this teaching was to soften hard hearts. It was to till up that rocky soil. It was to, to break up that hard ground so that it's possible that this would penetrate into their hearts and then they, by the, the work of the Spirit in them, that they would see their deficiency. They would see that if they were to, to, to take their last breath at that moment, they would be assembled on the Lord's left hand. They would be a goat. And it's something the parable or it's something that the teaching clearly highlights that they're assembled before the Lord, they're gathered before the Lord. The angels come and they gather the nations and they place them before the Lord and the Lord, well, he discriminates between them. He places the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, but they left this world or they are in this world as such. Once you take your last breath, once you leave this life, you are what you are. There's no amendment. There's no there's not another opportunity once you leave this life to amend for the way you lived it. If you've squandered the talents, then you've squandered the talents. The day of judgment is a day of accountability and reconciliation. There's not going to be any conversion on that day. There are, will be no second chances 
There's, no go- there's not going to be any amendments to the judgment. It's going to be true. It's going to be final. The- Jesus tells us that once that judgment is rendered, each one goes off into their reward. For the righteous, the blessed eternal life, to the unrighteous, to hell and torment. The doctrine of final judgment, beloved, is a very important and basic doctrine to the Christian faith. It's basic. That's what the book of Hebrews teaches us. It's it's part of the ABCs of the Christian life that there will be a day that our Lord will return and he will render to each man according to their deeds. And the doctrine that we are highlighting and that I am laying before you is that you should embrace this doctrine of final judgment and in light of embracing that doctrine, amend your ways where You need to amend your ways. That now is the time to embrace this teaching and to understand what is required of me so that I may walk in accord with the revelation of God's word so that I, when I leave this life, or if I'm still living when he comes again and I'm translated into whatever state I am in, will be in, that it'll be settled, it'll be done. And there will be no need for me to worry about that day. It'll be taken care of here and now. Beloved, today is the day of salvation. Just to show you the importance of the doctrine and its emphasis, turn to Acts chapter 17. And we are told that, you know, by some of the easy believism pastors that they don't focus on judgment. They don't teach this doctrine of judgment because it's too burdensome. It's too, it it depresses people. And we don't want to depress people in church. We want to build them up. We want to lift them up. And so therefore, we want to take out the doctrine of judgment and just lay it over here on a shelf. Oh, it's there, but we just don't utilize it. Well, that's not what the Apostle Paul thought. And the Apostle Paul had no problem speaking of judgment. He, he had no problem at all uh, laying before the people, well, the truth, the truth of Almighty God. And if you look in your Bibles in that portion of, of uh, chapter 17, you'll see this, this sermon that Paul preached, or it's typically known as the Sermon on Mars Hill, where Paul began to testify of the living and true God. And to summarize that section, they mocked him for it. They ridiculed him. They 
thought, what a, what a silly idea to believe in something of the resurrection. And look at verse 26. Or let's back up to verse 25 or 24. Now notice how Paul addresses this. Now they don't believe in God. These people do not believe in the true God. They believe in many other kinds of man-made gods. But look what Paul tells them in verse 24 and following. And God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on, the, live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God and perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, and as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to shrink. Uh, not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone and an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Now, why? Because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, Paul's not begging for their acceptance, is he? Paul takes this biblical truth, this truth that's established even by the light of nature, but highlighted in his word, and Paul sets it before them, and he says, why should you repent? Why should you embrace this God who is the creator of all things, this God who has established all the families of the earth? Why should you repent of these false gods and embrace the one true and living God? Because he has appointed a day of judgment, and he is going to come on that appointed day, and he's going to render every man according to his works, his righteousness, or wickedness. And Paul doesn't apologize for this. Paul's not seeking their favor. He's not seeking to be their best downloaded minister. He's not seeking to be popular. He is seeking to be faithful. He is seeking to be true. He is seeking to be, to be honoring to his God and Lord and the one who's called him to this ministry. And he loves men and he doesn't want people to perish. So he lays before them the truth of the word. Now, brothers and sisters, the fact is this. The reason we must, even in our day, preach this doctrine is because there are many on the way to hell. Many. As I preach this sermon, there are many on the way to everlasting destruction. Our Lord on the Sermon on the Mount 
even addressed the day and he lived. I mean, look at the, uh, the apostasy that was taking place around the Lord Jesus. He talked about the narrow way and the broad way. And what did he say? There are many on this broad way. Many. He even backs it up later on, does he not? And say, but there are many who will say to me on that day, many again, many, many are on the broad way. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? And of course he will, he will state, he will say to them, I, I, no, I never knew you. It's a somber and a sobering teaching that, that we must embrace it. We must accept it. We must know about it and we must understand it and we must begin to amend our lives recognizing that we all have an appointed court date set in the future that none of us are going to miss and it's never going to be rescheduled. It's going to happen exactly when God has appointed it to happen Now, last week, remember, beloved, I set before you many of the best Christian confessions highlighting that all of them addressed this day of judgment. Now, why why am I taking the time to do this? Well, because of our day and time, there is, without a doubt, there is this desire to put off everything that's uncomfortable to us. Everything. We live in a very clinically, it's almost like if it's bad, if it's stressful, if, it's, if it brings any undue pressure into our lives, we should, we should just back away from it and we've become so weakened by it. Life can be stressful. There's pressures in life. There's responsibilities, which brings pressure. And how we attend to those things and what power we attend to those things by our own flesh or by the spirit of God informing our hearts by the truth of God's word so that we might live out according to his will, these duties, these responsibilities in his strength. But there is a great push in so-called Christian circles to just do away with all of these things that we don't like. And by doing that, we are theoretically, if not literally, tearing the pages out of our Bible. We're ignoring those pages. We're not addressing the whole counsel of God's word. We're, we're not feasting upon the whole buffet that God's laid before us in which that would make us mature and, and strong Christians, right? It's been, it's been altered. It's been changed. We only feast on a few passages of scripture, but we don't feast from the whole thing. But brothers and sisters, we must feast on the whole counsel of God's word. And we must even address this doctrine that may make us uncomfortable, yet if we look at it in faith, it will have a sanctifying effect upon our lives. Amen. 
That's the whole purpose of it. That's why Jesus is punctuating those parables. He's emphasizing the need for us to amend our lives because we are going to be accountable for them. All that we've been given. All that we've been given. Will we be ready when he returns again? Will our lamps, will we have enough oil for our lamps? Will we have exchanged our talents? Will we have improved our lives according to the Lord's blessing? Or will we just hide everything off into a hole? I want to demonstrate for you the consistency of Scripture. There's, there's, there's no inconsistent inconsistency in scripture there there's there's, when it comes to the teaching of of the this final judgment there's just continuity through the bible in fact we read in our call to worship this morning psalm 96 and i on purpose did that so that you i'm sure picked up on the psalm and, and what it was declaring about yahweh right that the whole earth the whole earth should sing his praises. That the whole earth should embrace him and do what? Proclaim the good tidings of his salvation from day to day. That was the job of the Old Testament church. That church under age, that Hebrew church, they had a job to do and their job was to proclaim the good tidings of Yahweh to sing his praises, praises about what? His salvation. But they often hid their responsibilities off in a hole. Tell of his glory, verse three says, among Who? The nations. His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Think about Paul. I have no doubt Paul didn't have this psalm in his mind when he was addressing those at Mars Hill. Paul understood this. This is what Paul was doing. What does he say in verse 5? For all the gods of the people are idols. The Lord made the heavens. Did you not get that when we read Acts? That's exactly what Paul is saying. Notice that verse 13. Before the Lord he is coming and he is coming to judge the earth. And he will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. It's an established truth, beloved. When you think about the church, when you look at the Hebrew church, you look at the Christian church, what's the role of the church? I mean, we just, we got a glimpse of it in Psalm 96. We made, we made some application to what they should have been doing, what they were called to do. But is it any different than what we're called to do as the Christian church? No, it's not. In fact, our confession of faith states that we have primarily two jobs to do when it comes to spreading the good tidings of God's salvation, and that's to do what? 
to gather, to gather and perfect the saints that we would proclaim God's good tidings of salvation to all who will listen, to all who will hear, to all the nations, and that we will tell them if they repent of their sins and embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they can be, well, saved from that, not only from their sins, but also from that dreadful judgment of hell fire that Jesus says in Matthew 25 was prepared for the devil and his angels. You remember the demon that come in contact with Jesus and he speaks And he reveals this judgment day. The demon cries out. He says, what have thee to do with Jesus? Have you come here to torment us before the time? See, they know. They know that there is a appointed day of judgment that they will will give an account on. And brothers and sisters, let's turn to Romans chapter 2 and look how this day of judgment is even emphasized by Paul as the light of nature. Paul even emphasizes here that even the light of nature gives testimony to this judgment And I'm going to just move through much of the first part of chapter 2. I want to begin reading at verse 2. It says, now we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And such things are those things that are condemned. Verse 3, but... Do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? I mean, Paul there is even using this idea of the light of nature that what? All men know that bad things ought to be punished. When when men sin against one another, they know it's wrong. They know it's wrong. Now, he's going to tell us why in a moment, but I want to establish it here so that you see it. That this light of nature is, has a condemning element to it that we know that good ought to be rewarded and that evil ought to be punished. We see it all around us. Now, notice what he goes on to say. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, 
to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also for the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I mean, Paul here is continuing to emphasize, what do we do with good people? We honor them. What do we do with good and honorable men and women? They are honored, right? They are, they are exalted. We, we honor them. We praise them. Paul says nothing wrong with that. What do we do with evil people? We condemn them. Punish them. We exile them. And you can look in our day and time, and it has come true that evil is good and good is evil. They flipped it over. They exalt what is evil and honor it. And they punish and defame what is good. That shows you how dark the culture is. It shows you just how purposely, wickedly dark and unrighteous this nation has become. Because it's even, of course it's contrary to the word of God, but it's contrary even to the very light of nature. They know better, and yet they still do it, and we're going to get there. Bear with me. For look at verse 11. For there's no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Now look at verse 16. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus or Christ Jesus. Now, Paul says, listen, it doesn't matter if they have the word or not. It doesn't matter if they have Bibles or not. It doesn't matter if they ever had a church in their nation or not. They'll be judged accordingly. If they did not have the outward revelation of God's law, they'll be judged by that inward revelation of God's law on their conscience. How many times have they told their conscience to be quiet? How many times have they hushed their conscience? How many times have they lived contrary to the very condemnation of their conscience when their conscience was telling them, this is wrong, this is evil, this is wicked? And that, Paul says, and according to my gospel, on that day, God will judge those secrets. Very consistent with Matthew 25, isn't it? 
There's no, there's no contradiction there with Matthew 25. Jesus is the king. He's the son of man. He's going to come in his glory. He's going to come with the entourage of his angels. They're going to assemble the nations before him. He's going to sit on his throne and he's going to render judgments according to their deeds. So no contradiction there. But note, but here's the other thing too that I want to impress upon you again because of the the popularity of dispensationalism, the teaching of dispensationalism where there's multiple judgments and multiple comings of the Lord. He's going to come and judge some people, establish a kingdom, then he's going to have another judgment and then another judgment. That can't be supported by Scripture. Every time the Scripture speaks typically of the coming of Jesus on this appointed day, what happens when he comes? Judgment. And there's the finality to this judgment. When you read Matthew 25, don't you sense, right? You can sense the finality of it. What happens? Those who were accepted by him go off into everlasting life. And those who he did not accept, those who had rejected him, those who did not know him, well, they, the accursed ones, they go off to everlasting torment. Even emphasizing in verse 41, depart from me accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That There's a finality to this, to this world, isn't there? As we know it, as we are experiencing it now. Very consistent with what Paul says in Romans chapter two that he's appointed a day, he's gonna come back, he's gonna lay out the secrets of men's hearts, he's gonna judge them. What? By Christ Jesus. He's going to make these judgments. What is he going to judge? Righteousness. What is he going to punish? What is he going to punish? Unrighteousness. Now, brothers and sisters, we stand on a much more sure foundation than the light of nature, I assure you. I'm not exalting the light of nature above the work of Scripture. What I'm telling you is judgment is embedded in the hearts of every man. That's why even Paul could say in Galatians 6, a man shall reap what he sows. We know this to be true. We know this to be true, don't we? Let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture that I want, but I want to impress this upon us because if you're sitting down with someone and you need to encourage them with this, you need to open up the Word of God and, and to be able to speak to it. But let's look at Psalm 73. Now, we've used this psalm in, in various ways. But what I want to impress upon you, here is the Psalm of Asaph, and it's contrasted some, that when the righteous see the prosperity of the wicked, they consternate, they, they sit back, they're confused. Why is, here's my point, why is Asaph confused in the Psalm? 
What did I just show us? What did we just see in, in, in Romans 2 about the light of nature and judgment? We believe that the wicked ought to be punished. So when we don't see the wicked punished, we're, we, we have a tendency to, to doubt. We have a tendency to allow our imaginations to wander and, and, and question God. Lord, why? And this is what Asaph is doing here. L- listen to what he says. Um, Verse 2, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See, that's, that's, that's a contradiction, the prosperity of the wicked. And there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind, therefore... Pride is their necklace and garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness and imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue uh, parades through the earth. Now listen, here's the picture. The picture is what's God's church doing? Gathering the elect. How does the church gather the elect? We preach the gospel. What's a part of the gospel that we preach? A final day of judgment that God is going to come and he's going to bless the righteous and he's going to curse the wicked eternally. And what are they here? What are this wicked, the wicked prosperous here, they're like, look, I am prosperous. What are you saying? I don't have any needs. I don't need your Jesus. I don't need your gospel. My life is fat and full and festive. I've got everything I could ever want and need. I don't need this. This is, this is for needy people. Arrogance. That's the picture. Why should I embrace Jesus Christ? I have a blessed life. And look at verse 10, it says, therefore his people turn from, return to this place and the waters of abundance are drunk by them and they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. They always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And when I pondered to understand this, I was troublesome in my sight. It was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived their end. The point is, beloved, as we read this psalm, they don't escape judgment. There are those that will in this life not face the hardships, the penalties, the the chastisements, the spankings, okay, that amend people's lives. There are some that will just go from fatness to fatness to fatness to fatness. And all along the way, they accumulate their arrogance and their pride and they mock everything that looks weak to them. But when they leave this life, they will stand before God Almighty. All the nations will be gathered before him. 
all, all men will be gathered before him. And that's why so much of our our, our history, our, our founding fathers, our reformed fathers and whatnot. This is one of the important aspects of living life because they even understood though a man may escape the temporal judgments and he may be rendered not guilty by a human judge, that does, that does not mean that he's not guilty before the divine judge. You know, we've all seen probably in our lifetime travesties of justice in court. They're not free. They're just free from this life. They're not free from the next. There's still another judge that they must meet just like we have to meet. And that should put fear in every one of us. Men can get it wrong. And men often do get it wrong. But God will not get it wrong. God will not make a mistake. His judgment will be accurate and it will be final. There will be no appeal. So we see this, right? It's a reasonable deduction to make, is it not? That... that just because we see, I mean, it, it's reasonable, first of all, it's, it's contrary even to the light of nature to see the wicked prosper. But they do. They do. But it should not cause us to stumble. Not if we hold to this doctrine of this final day of judgment. For we know, we know, Right? that there's still another day of accountability awaiting all men. And that judge even knows the secrets of the heart. <sighs> Let's look at, um, so at least let, before we look at another passage of scripture, We, what we see around us, beloved, don't, don't allow it, don't allow it to cause you to stumble, but stay the course. Understand, hold to, cling to the fact that God is in charge and no one is going to fool him. No one, there's no, none of us, none of us are going to escape a righteous judgment. And it's the light of nature. We, we, we should condemn the applaud of wickedness. Obviously, we should condemn it. It's wrong to applaud wickedness. It's wrong to honor unhonorable people. It's wrong to exalt criminals. It's wrong to exalt those who oppress others and take advantage of others. It is sinful. It is wicked. It is unrighteous in God's sight. And it is a travesty when the innocent aren't defended and the true people who are honorable are not honored and exalted. 
and held up for the rest to see. We have Matthew 25, we have Romans chapter 2. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat in the earth and its works will be burned up. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed and burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, and also in all of his letters, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you do not so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and the day of eternity. Amen. What does does Peter say here? Peter says there's this day that when the Lord comes, it's going to be what? Like a thief, as we've heard this multiple times already. And there is in this section of scripture finality to it. The earth, what burned up, a new heavens, a new earth. All he says in verse 13, according to his promise. Promise of what? What's this promise? I'm coming again. I'm coming again. The first time Jesus came was in his humiliation. Formed in the womb of a virgin, born in obscurity in a manger. This time when he comes, it'll be in the exaltation of his glory and power. Unmistakable. Unmistakable power, glory, and authority. And he's going to remake everything new. And what does he say? What's his encouragement to us? It's not to shrink back and to shrivel up in a ball and do nothing. He goes, no, stay, remain steadfast in your profession of faith. Remain steadfast. Don't be carried away because even in Peter's day, some were saying, oh, this stuff's already happened. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And Peter says, don't allow them to distract you from your holiness from your pious living before the Lord 
remains dead. What do we see in all those parables where the absentee landlord with the absentee sovereign, the king, and all, what did we find? We find the servants getting drunk, beating the slaves. We find them not doing what they ought to do. That's the point Jesus is correcting here and that Peter is even addressing. Look, he has gone away, but don't worry. He's coming again. And when he comes, it'll be like a thief in the night. You don't know it. But when he comes, remain all all along the way, remain steadfast and true. Verse 18, this is the beautiful, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at another, let's look at another passage. Revelation 20. Verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead and the great and small standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which are in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which are in, in them. And they were judged, every, every one of them according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, in all of these passages that I've read to you, brothers and sisters, there's continuity. That when Jesus comes again, there's a finality to this world and to this to, to the things that we give an account to. And the purpose of that doctrine is to help us amend our lives right now. All that we do, we do by grace, the strength of grace. We can't change our hearts. God changes us. But the point being, and this is the, what I'm going to get to later in Matthew 25 as I address the righteous and the wicked. Grace is effectual. People change. God comes to change people. God comes to put his spirit in people. And when he puts his spirit in people and they are saved and they are regenerated and they are born again and he begins blessing the means of grace as they partake, as they read their Bibles, as they pray, as they study their Bibles, as we hear sermons preached, as we take the Lord's Supper, as we worship him publicly, baptized in his name. God uses all of these things to grow us and to mature us and to keep us steadfast, to gather and perfect the saints, the elect. Because there is coming a day, beloved, and and, and whether or not we stand as God's elect before the throne and all of our sins are laid before him, maybe. I mean, I've heard different variations of, well, it's not going to be our sins have been forgiven. They have been cast far from you as far as the east is from the west. I, I, I know. I believe that. But it also may be, beloved, that as our sins are laid before us, 
part of the recognizing of this king of glory is how much we've been forgiven. Because we don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve it. We don't naturally deserve it. It's by grace. Unmerited grace. And to have that display could only make the elect fall before the Lord and adore him for his grace. We need a fresh perspective of the day of judgment, don't we? I think it would help us. I think it would help families. I think it would help young people. You know, the idea that young people suffer from, I'm going to live forever. You're not. You're not going to live forever. Ask us older people. Time flies. Time flies, doesn't it? There's not a person in this room that can't remember what it was like when they were little. And it's a distant memory. And we're going to stand before God. But we have the choice right now under the preaching of his word, under the revelation of his word, to, to do what? To be prepared. To be ready. Like the five wise virgins. To be ready. Like the five talent servant, like the two talent servant, to be ready that when our Lord comes back, we have something to show for it. That's the question. I hope all of us will be found on the Lord's right hand. Let's pray. Father in heaven, though this teaching is weighty, Lord, it is glorious for every saint, for for anyone that loves you, adores you, that desires you, that wants to be in your presence, O Lord, that Lord, we long for your coming again and we ask, Father, that you would come and set things right. Lord, it's miserable living in a world that's upside down. It is miserable, Lord, when we see righteousness mocked, when we see your name defamed. It's miserable, Lord, when we hear your name blasphemed. The innocent murdered when the vile are lifted up, exalted, and paraded around, Lord, for all of us to bow down to. Lord, it is, it is heartbreaking. And we long, O oh Lord, for you to come in the glory of Christ's name and established, Lord, final righteousness and justice. We long, O Lord, for you to set this world straight, for you to put down the wicked, and for you, O Lord, 
to exalt your name, Lord, over all the earth. For you are the king of heaven and earth. And you are the king of kings and Lord of lords. And I pray, O oh Lord, as you send out your preachers and you establish your churches, the nations would be taught to kiss your cheek. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.